If you have your Bibles, please open them to Job chapter 8. Job chapter 8. What would you do, and what would you say, if you lost everything? Or if you lost something or someone important to you? If you felt that your world had been turned upside down? If you felt that God had abandoned you? If you began to think that God was not listening to you? And then your friends show up, and who, after an appropriate amount of time, in which they are both present and silent, demonstrating the ministry of presence and the sacrament of silence, they turn away from you, because Job says to Eliphaz, you know, why don't you look at me? They turn away from you and they tell you, it's all your fault. You brought this on yourself. Job's friends seem to think that he has committed some great sin which he will not acknowledge, and that's why all these calamities have come upon him. What would you do? What would you say if your friend said this to you? In the book of Job, we find three rounds of dialogue in which each friend, each of the three friends, has a go at Job, and then Job responds. And as we've seen, in Job's response, there are two parts. And the first, he addresses the words of his friends, and then we hear him in prayer to God. And as we saw last week, his prayers really don't fit neatly into any category that we might imagine for prayer. They sound more like rebellion and challenge than what we normally associate with prayer. Rather than review Eliphaz's speech and Job's response, I want us to consider for a few moments the matter of anger. Job is angry. Of this there can be no doubt. Who is he angry with? Well, I would say he's angry at his situation, he's angry with Eliphaz, and he is angry with God. One could hardly blame him for being angry at his situation. He's lost all his possessions, he's lost his children, he's lost the support of his wife, and now that of his friends. So Job is angry with Eliphaz. He tells him, Job tells Eliphaz, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends. Guys, you're supposed to have my back. What's happened? Job is angry with God, but his anger is expressed in prayer. I mentioned last Sunday we must be ready when we go through the book of Job, that at any moment Job will shift from the language of debate with his friends to the language of prayer. That is, he goes from having a dialogue or conversation with his friends to a conversation with God. And in this prayer, these prayers, Job expresses what one writer has called a kind of upside-down trust. That is, he trusts that God can handle anything and everything that Job has to say to him. He trusts that God alone can answer the cries of our heart, if any answer is possible at all. And this, I think, is what separates an authentic crisis of faith from something that's merely self-centered and you know, almost, almost like a spoiled child rather than someone who is crying out to God um, with a real crisis of faith. In such an encounter, Job knows he's overmatched. I mean, a finite mortal being against the infinite God. And he actually wonders why God even cares. Um, Reminds us of the words of Psalm 8. You know, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. 
Chapter 7, where we ended last week, is the end of Job's prayer to God. He says, If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. Like a wounded child, Job cries out against a relationship with God, one that is so broken that Job can't fix it, and yet so intense he can't be rid of it. In Job's prayers, we have a man who truly believes in God. At the same time, he wonders what is going on. Just a final word on anger. Anger is not always inappropriate, okay, for the people of God. We might tend to think that's not a very Christian thing to do. The line between anger and sin is a very fragile one, and I think it moves all the time. We need to make a distinction between anger and hostility. Anger can be creative, whereas hostility is often, if not always, destructive. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I find it interesting that in writing that, Paul's actually quoting from the Psalms, the evening prayer in Psalm 4. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. In a book entitled The Gospel of Anger, the author writes, The task which faces us, if the Christian commitment to compassion and to justice is to be honored in the way we act toward others as individuals and as nations, is to sever the link between anger and destructiveness and to find ways in which people's powerful reactions to life's dangers around them may be put to the service of human wholeness. One can, in fact, be angry, and Job is angry. But we are told, be angry and do not sin. And the author of the Gospel of Anger says, you can be angry, but do not be destructive. Eliphaz has spoken and Job has responded. Now it is the time for Bildad the Shuhite to speak. As one commentator put it, like a vulture descending on a lion's kill, Bildad now tears away at Job with accusations and seductions familiar to us familiar to us from Eliphaz. Who is this Bildad? He is Bildad the Shuhite. It's been suggested that he is the descendant of Shua. And who is Shua? He is the son of Abraham. We read through the Bible last year. Do you remember that Abraham, after Sarah died, married a woman named Keturah, and she bore to him six sons. The sixth one name is Shua. It may be that, in fact, Bildad is one of his descendants. We really don't know more than that. He's simply Bildad the Shuite. Of the three friends, he is the traditionalist. As one writer put it, he is the traditionalist par excellence. He goes by the book. His source of information is not experience, like Eliphaz, but his scholarship. The result is, we can say, that Bildad's source of enlightenment is not a personal contact or relationship with God, but scholarly learning, and archaeology or archaeological hoarding. He's got all this theology put into a pile. Bildad is a type of theologian who appeals to the past without realizing that the present requires rethinking 
formulas of the previous generations. Let's listen to what this man has to say. Chapter 8, Job chapter 8. And I'll just warn you, he starts out rather harshly, seeming, you know, in the cause of defending God's justice. But while he's doing that, he trashes his friend, who's been through so much. Let's read the first seven verses. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore to you or restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Just some things to note. Bildad calls Job a bag of air. Your words are a blustering wind. And then in, in what can, it's like one of the most cruel things said in this book, he suggests that his children got exactly what they deserved. It was their fault that they died. Job lost his ten children, and Bildad said, God gave them what they deserved. They sinned against God. He gave them over to the penalty of their sin. As one writer put it, it's an interestingly cruel way to convince a bereaved father of the doctrine of God's unimpeachable justice. God is just. That's why your kids died. Those rotten kids of yours, they got exactly what they deserved. Bildad points to God's justice. It is inflexible, and it is just. And Bildad suggests that there's something wrong in the relationship between Job and God. And so, like Eliphaz, Bildad tries to induce, he tries to seduce Job into coming back to God for the benefits. For the benefits. As one person put it, fortunately for Job, Bildad is in a position to offer Job a deal. Let's make a deal. Here, come on, Job, I will give you a deal. God will intervene and will restore everything. In fact, the latter part will be so much greater than the former part. If only Job will stop crying out against the catastrophes that have befallen him, if he will accept his suffering as God's just punishment, if he will throw himself on God's mercy and live an upright life. Really? What does Bildad basis on? Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? In other words, the basis of his judgment, of his statements, is the wisdom of the elders, the former generations. And what did they say? Verse 11. Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What he trusts in is fragile. What he relies on is a spider's web. He leans on the web, but it gives way. He clings to it, but it does not hold. He is like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its shoots over the garden. It entwines its roots among a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn 
from its spot, the place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away, and from the soil other plants grow. For Bildad, it's cause and effect. It's a simple matter of cause and effect. This is what the elders said. Former generations, this is what they said. In the same way that papyrus can't grow where there is no water, if it's not marshy land, then those who forget God will also perish. Someone who forgets God has misplaced his trust, and he will not survive. But there is hope. Verse 20. Surely God will not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter, your lips with joy, shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame, and the tents of the wicked will be no more. Come back, Bildad says to Job. Give up your sin. Come back to God. He will not reject you. He will fill your mouth with laughter. He will stand against your enemies. Simply put, Job, you need to repent. Own up. You did something really, really terrible. That's why this has all happened. Your kids sinned grievously. That's why they're dead. Cause and effect, the previous generations have told us. You know, we're like nothing. We're babies, okay? But the old ones, this is what they said. It's cause and effect. And so look at you. You're a mess. You must have done something wrong. Job now responds in chapters 9 and 10. By the way, we'll be studying as we go through Job what Job's friends say. But you will notice that I will spend more time on Job's responses. He is on a pilgrimage of faith. And I think there's much we can learn from it. Job does not disagree with Bildad. He recognizes God's justice and power. And in this, he agrees with Bildad. The first 13 verses of chapter 9. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true. But how can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him or come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. Job agrees, I know this to be true, he says, that no human being can be righteous before God. This is something that uh, Eliphaz mentioned in chapter 4. By the way, in saying this, he is challenging both Eliphaz and Bildad because they're like, yeah, come back, be blameless before God. And Job's like, really? Is that something that is possible? Job says, if somebody went to court with God, you could not win one time out of a thousand. Because God is wise. God is all-powerful. His power is vast, Job tells us. And in verses 5 to 13, Job lists the things that God does or has done. The things he alone can do or has done. He moves mountains. He overturns mountains. He shakes the earth. He speaks to the sun. It does not shine. 
he can seal off the light of the stars. He stretched out the heavens, including creating the constellations. And three are mentioned specifically here. Uh, Ursa Major, the bear. Orion, a southerly constellation. And Pleiades, the seven stars, which are close to Orion. And then the constellations of the south. He treads on the waves of the sea. He performs wonders. He does amazing things, great things, things that cannot be understood. Miracles, marvelous things. And more than that, no one can stop him. No one can say, hey, stop that. What are you doing? No one can challenge him. Even the mythical creature Rahab, the dragon, cowers at the feet of God. And if this is the case, then what hope does Job have? And the question is, why does this all-powerful God not answer Job? Job is not denying God, and he is not calling into question God's justice, his wisdom, or his power. The issue is his silence. He passes by, and I don't even know it. He's not answering. He's not speaking to Job. And in the light of the power of God, God who can speak to anyone at any time, why he is silent to Job leads Job to despair. His anger gives way to hopelessness. And we hear more of this as we go on. Look at verse 14. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who will, I sum- or who will summon him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? What if, what if Job could take God to court? In this section, we are, we are presented with the absurdity of such an idea. Job's case for his innocence could never be put into words adequate to God's overwhelming presence. It's almost as though as soon as you begin to speak, you're overwhelmed and you are, you're smashed, you're crushed. If it's a matter of strength rather than justice, God wins, hands down. One cannot wrestle with God. If it's a matter of justice, who can call God to account? And then seemingly Job crosses a line here when he says he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. 
Let's be clear about something. I believe that for Job, there's an important distinction between cursing and telling the truth. Job is not cursing God. Satan said he would. And I think his friends suspect that Job has, but he hasn't. Rather, he's telling the truth. Again, if you look at verses 23 and 24, when a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. And here, Job identifies with the family of humanity. Job has experienced God as a terrifyingly unjust enemy. But he's not prepared yet to cut off his quest, a tenacious quest for a relationship with God that will honor Job's innocence. Job renews his despairing complaint. Look, if you would, at verse 25. My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim like they skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. Time is short, and there is no evidence that the goal is in sight. Verse 27, if I say I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile. In other words, should he put on a happy face and just pretend that everything is well? Just be happy, just smile. Verse 28, I still dread all my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? What's the use? Job seemingly throws his hands up. Even if I washed myself with soap, some translations have snow, and my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. You see, if Job were to subject himself to a a program of self-discipline, in order to improve his chances of being accepted by God. He knows it's not, he is innocent, he is blameless. Um, that's where he is. And any, any attempt at self-improvement will, in fact, be a joke. What Job wants is a level playing field. Okay, God is infinite, Job is finite. God is almighty, Job is, look at him. He's in the town garbage heap covered with sores. Job wants there to be an even playing field where he can address God and God must be accountable. Look at verse 32 and what follows. He is not a man like me that I might answer him so that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job knows this isn't possible. It is not possible that God would be a man like Job, that Job could then speak to him. It's at this point, I think, that we might misunderstand uh, a story that happens in Genesis chapter 32. It's a story of the angel who wrestled with Jacob. And just to remind you, Uh, Jacob has decided to leave his father-in-law. He comes back with his wives, uh, his 12 children, Dinah and his 11 sons. Benjamin has not yet been born. And he faces a crisis because he he finds out that his twin brother, Esau, from whom he stole things, is coming to meet him with 400 men. So Jacob divides up. 
what he has. And when he does that, he's left alone. He's hoping that the brother might take one and the other can escape. But Job is left alone. And we're told, we read, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Jacob did not start this confrontation. If you think about it, if somebody hits you, if somebody makes a fist and smacks you, you have two choices. You can either run or you can stand and fight. But if somebody wrestles with you, you have no choice. You have to wrestle in order, in order to either get away or to stand and fight. It is God who wrestles with Jacob, not Jacob wrestling with God. I don't think that Job wants to wrestle with God, but he wants a playing field, an even playing field. And yet he knows this isn't possible. How do you, the, the one who made this universe, how can you then subject him and say, listen, you got to play by the rules. This is your opponent, Job. You know, don't break the rules. You know, when I tell you to break, break. You, know, you cannot do that. And Job knows this. But he has nothing to lose. So Job puts forward the fact, not the fact, his opinion that God is unjust. That's a big step. To suggest that the God of the universe is unjust. But now that he says that, it seems to open the floodgates. Now that he has been so forward as to say that, he addresses God with what I would say is surprising intimacy. It's almost as though when we come to chapter 10, Job gets his wish from chapter 9 that it's an even playing field. As one commentator noted, like a wounded lover, Job asked God to explain why the relationship has been shattered from God's side. What did I do wrong? Why are you breaking up with me? Is it something I did? Is it me? What have I done wrong? Verse 1 of chapter 10. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see, a, do you see as a mortal sees? Are your days like those of a mortal or your years like those of a man that you must search out my faults and probe my sin though you know I am not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand? Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh? and knit me together with bones and sinews. You gave me life and showed me kindness, and in your providence watched over my spirit. But this is what you concealed in your heart, and I know this is, that this was in your mind. If I sinned, you would be watching me. It would not let my offense go unpunished. If I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head, for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. If I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. 
You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Your forces come against me wave upon wave. Just a couple things here. For the third time, Job speaks of hating his life. The first time was in chapter 7, verse 16, when he is answering Eliphaz. I despise my life, I would not live forever. The second time was, we just read it, in chapter 9, verse 21. I despise my own life. And now, Job addresses the Creator in what he calls the bitterness of spirit. I hate my life. It might be seen as a very dark passage, but something jumped out at me, something quite wonderful. It is beautiful how Job describes his coming to existence, how he has existence. If you look at verse 3, the work of your hands, and then verses 8, 9, all the way to 12, your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You gave me life and showed me kindness and in your providence watched over my spirit. I would say that there's something really important here that Job can argue with God in part because he knows it is God who gave him existence. It is God who sustains his life. And I would argue that many of us, many Christians today, cannot challenge God in prayer as Job did because they are not convinced that they owe their existence to God. We are far too scientific for our own good. We know the biology of our existence. We do not know the theology of our existence, how we came to be, how we continue to be. Job's language, I think, here is quite intimate as he challenges the one who made him. As I said earlier, Job trusts that God can handle anything that he throws at him. This is the one who made me. He knit me. He shaped me like you do with clay. He poured me like milk. It's just a wonderfully intimate passage. Job is convinced that God alone can answer the cries of his heart if there are any answers to be given. And yet, even though Job knows God made him, this marvelous thing that God has done seems like a waste of time. It's just a waste. Verse 18. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before any eye saw me. If only I had never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and deep shadow, to the land of deepest night where even the light is like darkness. For all the mighty creativeness of the Almighty, All Job can feel at this point is despair. And his friends aren't helping. Why is it that Job's friends are not helping? Why are they not comforting him? Because Job's very existence challenges their systems of belief. 
for Bildad, it is in fact the wisdom of previous generations. It's tradition. And for Job to sit there in this horrible condition, having lost everything, and to say, I've done nothing wrong. Well, that just flies in the face of tradition. Tradition says, you did something horrible. That's why these, have hap- these things have happened to you. And so rather than trying to comfort his friend, Bildad is busy building defense for tradition to say, you know, your kids got what they deserve. You're getting what you deserve. They don't comfort him because they're too busy defending their systems of belief. As with Eliphaz, Bildad believes that what you sow or what you reap is what you have sown. Job and his kids have done terrible things. The reality is Job's friends are absolutely wrong. They are wrong. There is more to the story than they know, than Job himself knows. But God knows. God knows exactly what is going on. In preparing for this, I'm struck by the fact that Job's friends seem to be quite modern. Uh, In one of the lectures I give to my students, I talk about the shifts that occur in the 19th century, the end of the Enlightenment, and we come into the Industrial Age. And one of the things we find is that mystery is sucked out of life. There's now a sort of, there comes this coming belief uh, with technology. You you break everything down in steps that we can come to know everything. And slowly but surely, the things that had been mysterious before are no longer mysterious. And it is striking to me that it is during this time that we have in literature the rise of the mystery novel or the mystery short story. Because mystery has been removed from life, but we as human beings need mystery, we now have authors who will provide it for us. Things we don't understand, things that make the hair on our arms stand up. But you will note that with all mysteries, mystery novels, at the end you find out who did it, right? Because we can't live with that sense of mystery. And in the modern age, and the postmodern age, we are so poor because we will not accept mystery. Job's friends won't accept mystery. And to a certain extent, Job won't either. To say, I don't know why this happened to you. No one seems willing to do that. To challenge God, one must accept that God is, in fact, the source of our being. And in closing, I'd like to read to you, if you want to turn there, Psalm 139, because it reminds me so much of what we see in Job 10, how that as Job challenges God, there's still the sense that you're the one who made me. And if nothing else in Psalm 139, for me, we hear great mystery. The first six verses, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful, wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And then verses 13 through 16. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eye saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God made us. We may struggle and say, why am I this way? Why have these things happened to me? What's going on? Job's asking the same questions. But on this pilgrimage of faith, he reminds us of something profoundly important. It's God who made us. And as the psalmist tells us, God knows every one of our days before they happen. He knows. We don't. And in that sense, we live in mystery, and we should. One last thing. I mentioned at the beginning, what if you lost everything, or you lost someone or something close to you? What if it seemed that your world had turned upside down? What if it seemed that God had turned his back on you, that God was not listening to you? And then someone not a friend, but someone said to you, it's your fault. And who is that someone? Yourself. That you say to yourself, I brought this on myself. When we went through 1 John, we came across that amazing verse that if my heart condemns me, if your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart. There is a mystery to what is happening in our lives now, but it's always been that way. When things are going well, we were okay. But then when things don't go well, then it's like, what's going on? And the beginning point is to say, God is the creator, and he made me, and he knows every single one of my days. And the last thing we sang, day by day, that's right, he is with us every step of the way. We may not understand. That is not a requirement. God knows. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're human. we just like to know what's going on, what's going to happen. In difficult times, we really, really want to know what's going on. There are times when we think you have abandoned us. Perhaps you no longer love us. That you've got more important things to do than to be concerned with us. In the words of Psalm 139, may we remember that you made us. You knit us together in our mother's womb. It sounds so so old-fashioned because we know the biology of things. You can do an ultrasound and see what the unborn child looks like. The mystery of life we have lost. 
and the mystery of your working in our lives, I think we have lost as well. Job's friends don't want mystery. Job just wants answers. The reality is you are wise, you are powerful, and you are just. And you love us. I thank you for gathering us together today to worship you in song, in prayer, the reading and preaching of Scripture. As we go out into the world, some of us will be staying at home, but in all that we do, may we have a sense of your presence with us. One who loves us, but one who knows every day of our lives before they happen. And may we trust you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.